Joa. I have a question for you today. And it's something I've been thinking about recently. Uh, I, I want I want your mentorship on this. Have has there ever been a time when you felt like you were just going through a lot of transitions at once where it was like things that you might have not liked start being things that you enjoy you're starting to your taste in whatever entertainment music whatever starts shifting a little bit I feel like that's kind of the era I'm in right now and it's very strange like I found myself listening to some country music the last like two days and I was like lord have mercy who am I why is this happening? Like, I've always liked the hits, you know, like I like the Thunder Rolls. Like, that's a great song. Right. And, you know, Shania Twain is great stuff like that. But like, I was like actually listening to some stuff and I was like, this is weird. I don't know how I feel about it. So that's my question to you. Transition periods. How, how do you feel about them? Have you had any in your life where things started shifting? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have. I mean, usually my shifts are happening because. Other people are deciding to change and I'm stuck. <laughs> Either change with them or get used to them not being around. That's fair. Uh, so, yeah, I think over time you do change. I mean, l- let me just say this, like food. You know, when I was younger, I didn't like sauerkraut. And now I love sauerkraut. So when did that happen? I don't remember. So, yeah, it even changes with food. Uh, I know that's weird, but that's true. That's something that popped in my head that we used to, my dad used to make us like, you're going to eat it. And my brother and I would figure out ways to hide it. And then now it's like, I'll even make it for myself. And it's just the weird, I don't know. I don't know when I started craving sauerkraut. So uh, I think a lot of shifts have happened just because you get older, you have more experience. Uh, But yeah, my interests have changed, but like you would have never seen me uh, do, um, metal music, you know, cause you know that <laughs> I know some of it <laughs> when I was younger, I just did country music. That's what I loved. I loved country music, Christian music. I liked oldies, you know, the fifties music. Cause my mom and dad always listened to that. And then, um, but anyway, when my son started playing the guitar and he started going, mom, mom, listen, this is Metallica. And I'm like, well, I kind of like that, you know? So I think just because I have gotten uh, due to people around me have influenced me and things that they like, it makes you, makes me kind of go, okay, I like that. You know, when I got married to my husband, he liked different things than I did. And then he never did pick up liking my stuff, but I, you know, we started liking some of the same things because it's like, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. So I think the more open-minded you are, the more you have a tendency to find yourself changing. Now, what I don't know is I was telling my dad not too long ago, I don't know when it was that it started that people started asking me questions about like school. Like I used to be the young person. I don't know when that changed, but somehow it changed where (laughs) (laughs) I'm the one that people come to. It was used to be the other way. I mean, I had some mentors that I would always go to and ask for help. And then I guess as they retired, uh, uh, my role around campuses changed. So kind of interesting, but yeah. So you're in a kind of a state of shift and change. Maybe that's because you're a vice principal now. You have to be more mature. 
Maybe. <laughs> I'm just you know, kidding. <laughs> I, I think there's, you were saying something there that I think is actually closer to the truth, which is I, I'm just in a, I'm, I literally shifted communities. Like I've been a part of yeah. the same, like really teach, like my friends have pretty much been the same since middle school. Like my closest friends, like the, one of the people I talk to the most I've been friends with since kindergarten. Right. So like my circle is relatively been my circle for a long time. But then when I became a teacher, it broadened a little bit, but then I was in that community for eight years. And, mm -hmm. and so it's all a very specific style and vibe and whatnot. And I shift to a really different community. And I mean, these people talk about football all the time and <laughs> <laughs> college football specifically. And, uh, -huh. uh, a lot of them listen to just some different music. Right. And, uh, there's a, there's a lot of country people and you know, the, there, I think there's just some specific, no, some specific people who are, you know, I, I, I find myself interested in them and they're, they're interesting to talk to. And so I just kind of start taking on some of those things, but I found myself going, Oh, you know, like I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, yeah, there's an artist named of Morgan Wallen. I was jamming him today and it, he had some, uh, it's country, but it has some, some pop little hip hop vibes to it. And I love anything that has genre mixing stuff. One of my favorite musicians is, uh, John Butler. Um, and he, he was like bluegrass country, rock and roll, hip hop, all mixed in depending on the album. Mm -hmm. And I've always liked that. And so I'm starting to dip my toes in a little different area. It's fun because it's as a creator, I, I get inspired when I hear something new that mixes things differently. Um, that's always kind of where I found myself most comfortable, whether I'm t in teaching in leadership and writing is when I can find kind of two disjointed ideas and go, Oh, people have really never done that before. Like when I wrote teach me teacher, I wanted to write about teaching, but I wanted to write about my life. And I was like, I don't know, a memoir teaching book, never seen one. Let's see if I can do it. And so that's what mm -hmm. gets me excited. Anyway, it's just been on my mind, transitional periods abound at age 32, I suppose, but I think they're going to continue periodically, just depending on what you've learned. Like you said, the communities and stuff like that. I mean, you know, again, going back to, to food, I don't know why I'm going to food, but, um, but my husband's Hispanic. Right. And so when he, um, when he's, you know, his grandmother who was straight from Mexico taught him how to cook. Well, he came in and started cooking. It changed my entire palate. I mean, it broadened it. You know what I mean? So I, I now know I can make myself some of the stuff. That, I mean, he taught me what he learned. So there's some things that I can make that people wouldn't think that I, I would make. I started, um, you know, enjoying peppers and pepper sauce and all kinds of stuff that I never did before. I mean, I'm not like crazy, but I mean, it's like I started appreciating those things because it was now new to me. I, I didn't have that influence because most of my family usually did German type food. So it's just kind of an interesting uh, concept. Just just looking at that alone, that would be uh, one way. Um, yeah, like, okay, so talking about football. All right, since uh, we're big Army people, uh, my brother was in the Army, and he was in the tank division. So uh, I now spend time, every time the Army-Navy football game comes on. You think I did that when I was in my 20s? Absolutely not. But I watched the Army-Navy football game. Of course, Army should win. They won this last time, but they always, uh, they always, uh, their uniforms change from year to year. 
to appreciate some aspect of their particular uh, core. And so this time they were, they actually did a tank division. And so my brother, I happened to be uh, visiting him yesterday. He's going out on some kind of a missionary trip. So he came into town to be able to go out. And uh, so I had lunch with him and I'm like, he was wearing the the army uh, jersey. And I said, oh my gosh, that's the tank division from the army Navy game. And he was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I watch them every year. They won. They even won. So I just got really, he's like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that you watched the Army-Navy game. I mean, it's, and this is not my thing, but I mean, football, I don't really get into it, but I watched that. So that's all because of the influence of people that are in my life. That makes a lot of difference. And kids, when, as a teacher, you know, kids will come in with different things uh, different sayings, different stuff like that. You know, I told uh, this one kid, they were asking me about some kind of word. I can't repeat it. Cause I have no idea. I can't remember what it was actually, but I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they go, yeah, you know, it means. And I said, look, I've been teaching for 10 decades. Isn't that right? 10 decades. That's what I said on accident. Three decades is 10 years, three decades. And I said, that's three decades. That's 30 years of kids coming up with lingo. I, I'm probably stuck in the ones that were closer to my year. You know what I mean? But you pick up on even sayings and stuff over the years. So it's just kind of an interesting thing. So, yeah, changes in the air. I know. It's interesting to think about because, you know, for anyone who, uh, you know, I think people get bored and stagnant and stuff. Try new things. See what's out there. Um, it's good. It's an interesting thing. I don't know. I'm finding myself in a in an interesting mode of creativity, I think, because of the just the alterations that I'm kind of going through, but enough about that, ladies and gentlemen, and my own psychological, uh, investigations. This is the craft that trap podcast. <laughs> That's Pam Ocho. I'm Jacob Chesley. We're two educators down here in the state of Texas doing what we love talking about literacy workshop and our craft and draft method and pretty much everything in between. We do a lot here on the show. We answer questions. We muse about life and we interact with you guys. And if you want to be a part of the show in an important way, you can go join us over there on our Patreon, just like our our supporters do. They are Alicia, Brandy, Leah, Mark, Amy, Rebecca, Courtney, Carol, Delissa, Destiny, Susan, Tracy, Hannah, Lori, Jen, and Matt. And a lot of them were at a training that you should have been at, but yeah. you might have missed it for some reason. But you can get access to that at our Listener Plus tier on the Patreon. So if you go sign up over there, join us. Not only do you get to ask questions directly to us and be a part of an amazing little community over there, you get access to several hours of training videos at this point everything from our craft and draft journal system to reading training to data training to strategies to increase workshop and hours and hours of bonus podcasts that you can join so if you want all of that go do that it's wonderful we think it's worth it but if not subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already we drop an episode every single friday for your listening pleasure but today ladies and gentlemen I believe we're going to be talking about what data matters. And this is, I love talking data, partly because it's a little bit taboo. It makes teachers roll their eyes. It's something uh, that is often talked about incorrectly in schools. Um, and I think Ochoa and I have definitely uh, cemented our passion on this with, with helping people think through it and even challenging each other to think about it in different ways and finding different angles. So we're going to be talking all about that. What data matters? 
All righty, Ochoa. What data matters? What data that's matters? Why. <laughs> that's why I wanted to talk about it. I'm over here. <clears throat> I'm over here trying to figure out what what data does matter because um, I've got to grow these kids. And, and and the thing is, our test is changing, so I'm not sure how to go about. I'm not sure how to go about monitoring it to see if. I'm really improving them enough for this new test. And some people would say, well, it doesn't matter because once they get the test, then you'll have that data. But I mean, I don't want, I don't think that's fair to the kids. So I got to figure out what really does matter. How do I really know that they're growing or not growing? And, um, and what can I use to do that? So um, I don't know, because we're, we're having a, you know, the way it's changing is we're having to do analytical literary type responses. And I know high school level, they've been doing that, but we haven't really been doing that down here at the middle school level or at the elementary level. So it's kind of scary. So what, what do you think? What, what, what should I be looking at? That's kind of where I'm at with that. That's my big question. So yes, I wanted to talk about it because I think if I'm going through it, maybe somebody else is too. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, my first thought, well, it goes to what are you trying to measure? You know, if you're looking at how to do literary response, um, then you have to the data you need to be looking at needs to really you need to figure out all the pieces that connect to that. So let's let's have a thought experiment. Let's go through everything that connects to if you're trying to write a response to a literary piece. Let's just say fiction for this. You're writing okay. a response. That, what are all the things that a kid has to be able to do in order to do that correctly? Well, I have to be able to understand the text. Is so that what we're talking about? Yeah, so comprehension, so, that's one. So comprehension, but they have to be able to identify the elements that authors use so knowledge talk about it knowledge of literary elements which are numerous okay uh they have to be able to think about the purpose why those authors use that mm-hmm. authors don't purpose. they yep three all right and then uh they'd have to be able to think about like the message what's the message be able to identify and pick out the message mm-hmm. off of the all the context clues not to mention I don't know. What else? Um, have I have to understand this. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say they have to be able to write a response. Well, that too. I mean, yeah. And how to craft, so, so how, to, how to hold an idea through. You just mentioned the reading side. So that's, that's I know. half that's of your I'm data. Trouble. <laughs> so, I'm having trouble. <laughs> so the, the next phase would be like, okay, so we have that. And then you add on some of your writing stuff, right? They have to be able to... Uh-huh. Uh, keep uh, a single thought and be able to expand upon it. They need to be able to use supporting evidence. They need to be able to use text evidence. Um, and they need to have grasp of uh, the English language enough to write something that is relatively grammatically correct. Right. So yeah. all of that, I mean, that's almost eight different standards, not including the ones that break down into multiple pieces like literary <laughs> devices or anything. And right. so, when this when this conversation happens, I was just having this conversation with some English teachers on my campus um, because they're they're going through the same issue because the test is changing. There's not a lot of guidance uh, 
from the state. And so teachers are going, well, I want to do this well. I want my kids to be successful. I want them to show the growth that I know that they're having in my class on this test. So it's it's valid for their experience and et cetera, et cetera. And the question goes, OK, so which one of those standards out of the eight we really mentioned what would you consider are the biggest umbrella ones that that take over the most of that? What would you say? Um, I guess finding uh, being able to find the main I I don't know. <laughs> Why are you asking me these questions? You're supposed to be the one with all the answers. So I'll give you my thought. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right, go ahead. Tell my, me where you're thinking, and then maybe I'll know. Well, and I'd be interested to see if you push back, because my All initial right. thought is if you have comprehension down mm -hmm. to where a kid can read pretty much anything and walk away understanding it on a functional level, I think you've captured a good portion of a lot of those standards, because here's the thing. As far as we're concerned with our test, and as far as I don't know if there's really any tests out there, listeners in other states or really other countries, too, who have a different experience can chime in. But I haven't really seen uh, a writing response for a test that is so specific to certain language. In other words, if they want you to talk about uh, how the conflict develops the theme and your answer, they're not looking for at least on the rubric, they're not looking for you or the or the student to use the language of that standard. In other words, they don't have to speak the language of English to write about how the conflict uh, can or pre how the conflict uh, develops through the theme, right? Uh, but they can still describe that if their comprehension level is high enough and if their writing ability is high enough to do that. In other words, they could be like an ignorant academic and that sounds wrong. But to me, it's like there, it's almost, it's the same thing as, uh, it, it's my same argument I make about writing. Yeah. Should kids know, you know, kind of the basic grammatical, grammatical rules and, uh, some of the terms. Yeah, sure. Is it imperative that someone knows grammar rules before they set out to write? Not necessarily. Uh, the Beatles famously were not, uh, they couldn't read music. And yet I don't think anyone's going to argue that Paul McCartney or John Lennon or Ringo <laughs> are, are, are not significant musicians. Jimi Hendrix didn't know how Metallica doesn't know how, like there's all of these musicians that do what they do at such a high level, but they don't have a technical knowledge of it. And I think sometimes we get bogged down in, okay, well they have to know the technical knowledge. It's like, no, it's nice if they do. And it's definitely a pursuit. But if we're talking the most bang for your buck, I don't know. I, I, I tend to rely on, Let's teach them how to think about this in a way that isn't so contingent on them learning vocabulary. And that way it really starts crossing over anything. And then I'll see how far I can take them. So, yeah, I mean, I think if they can't comprehend it all, then, I mean, you're, you're already dead in the water. So that's the battery, though, I guess, if you will, that charges the whole thing, the whole system. 
So they have to be able to comprehend no matter mm -hmm. what. I, as far as knowing whether or not that is a rising action or an exposition, I don't know. Some people would argue that that is necessary in order to teach the elements. What is the argument for that, by the way? Because I don't really know. <laughs> I know that I know that uh, Freytag, uh, you know, Dr. Freytag, whatever his he created that, you know, pyramid type looking model for the plot, the plot diagram. That was him. It was Freytag. Was it Freytag? I don't know. Yeah. I, I have a name now to yeah. rail against. Freytag. Yeah. That's so so uh, but anyway, I, I mean, I think if you're going to an analyze something at a high level. You know, it does help to know how to how to look at its parts, but you don't necessarily, I guess, have to. Like you said, you could describe it, maybe describe what you understand. Could work. I don't know. So if we were looking at this from a data perspective, I yeah. would it would it would be starting with reading something and then seeing, throwing out that question, right? Any, any question that would be similar to one that you see on a test and see where kids go with it and then start honing their thinking through it. Because what I've discovered and I, is when you're talking with kids about stuff, sometimes the, they're, they understand, they, they know the answer to what we're asking. It's just sometimes the way we ask it and the language around it hurts their ability to kind of communicate uh, what's happening. We, we found this when, you know, years ago when we were really upping our, uh, testing strategies, I suppose in the district, we were, we had a lot of conversations around using the language of the test, right? Using the language of the standards, et cetera, et cetera. And so that stuff is really useful, um, in that, but I think that just having that foundation of, okay, so how do you write about your thinking about a piece? Like that's, that is not a natural skill necessarily. Mm -mm. And so, and especially for kids that don't have rich reading lives already, there's not a lot to grab onto. Like, that's why, like when you get up to high school, I think the, the weirdest thing to see, you know, kind of coming from that middle elementary school vibe all the way up to high school is, you know, those AP tests and whatnot really rely a lot on your ability to make connections to a variety of, uh, pieces of literature and ideas and whatnot that you, you kind of like, if you're not building that from the ground up and if schools aren't, don't have a rich diet of letting kids read, I mean, you're really shooting a lot of kids in the foot that don't have great resources already. So you're, you're leaving out a chunk of your students who could get there. So. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I think that. So, so I'm thinking about data. So I think to me, one of the things, if, if, if we're going to start with comprehension, we really kind of need to, to go back and see what the students are reading too. What are we making available to them? Because they should be able to analyze or think about or be able to understand, if you will, uh, any type of writing or text. So if they're only staying on one type of text and they're not going to have enough, it's kind of like what we talked about at the beginning. The more we expose them, the more they're going to change in their thinking and the things that they like. I mean, that's what we talked about at the beginning of this whole session. So maybe one of the points of data I need to look at is what are these kids reading and how can I 
um, expand that. What's your thought there? Yeah. I mean, I think it's good because uh, I was just thinking as you were talking, uh, you know, the one of the importance of independent reading is teaching kids the feeling of being in a novel for a period of time because it is it's different than a short story it's reading a novel you know there's ups and downs there the plot isn't mm -hmm. always as clear cut as you might think there the conflict might present itself a certain way in chapter one by my mid book that the conflict has really evolved into something else and that experience is invaluable for, for kids to think about in terms of just understanding literature and being able to uh, write about it in an effective way. So looking at what they're reading and, and how far they're getting through it and, and the variety of stuff that they're getting, I think that is that that's a key piece of comprehension because it's, I'll never forget as a young teacher, um, you know, I love fantasy and so I was like, oh, all kids probably like fantasy, right? And so I would talk about this stuff and I would hand some fantasy books because they had no idea what they were reading. There was just too many, there was too many pieces yeah. of the genre that they were unfamiliar with just because they'd really never been exposed to it outside of like Percy Jackson or something. Um, and that was a really interesting experience, you know, my first, second year of talking about books with kids because... I was like, oh, this is this is like a language and the same thing for science fiction, the same thing for romance. Like there's all there's a language to each genre. And if kids have really only experienced one, I mean, who knows what pops up on a test? And then you're I mean, that's like playing go fish at that point. You're just hoping that yeah, they, they have the genre that the kids are most fluent in. But it can't always be the case. They throw yeah. weird crap on there sometimes. They do. Yeah. And it's. I mean, um, I think what there was one test that I saw where they, I uh, think you, we, we gave it to it, where the whole test is done in like text messages, like the whole entire story is done through text messages. And you're like, first of all, if you've never even read anything like that, it was, it was just weird to me. So they do throw some kind of crazy stuff in there. So, yeah, I think they have to be uh, be uh, ready for anything. I think as far as, you know, just talking about this, then the next set of data points I need is how well are they comprehending? What do you think? Yeah. So question is, how do you gather that? How do you know how well they're comprehending? I don't know. And that's where that's where uh, I don't know. I mean, I I know that I'm giving them like tests, like we're giving them some of our state release tests and things like that to see how well they're comprehending. But even still, some of those are multiple choice. So you almost, you almost have to have them write about it. Don't you to really understand how they're comprehending? I don't know, but I know that we're doing a lot of that. That's what we did when you were here is we looked at those, we gave them a pre-test and then a post-test and if they improved, Sometimes they didn't improve, and so we gave them a third test, if I recall. That's right. So um, I think I think any type of uh, I think inference should be probably a, a a strong point. What I've noticed here lately about inferencing, when I follow that particular data point, and it may go back to what you just talked about that language idea of different genres, because as we move through that inference score. 
it goes up and down. It is probably the ones, the one data point that I'm looking at in my classes where it's they're up and they're, I mean, it might be up on short story. And then you look at poetry and it is like that particular inference is down. I mean, like lots down. And then you might hit like drama and it's back up again. So, I mean, that it, it is like up and down. It's like a roller coaster. My inferencing scores are. When I look at that data and to me, inferencing is if you can't inference, you're probably, you're probably really not comprehending very well. Yep. What do you think? Yeah. Or you have the lack of background knowledge to do it. Okay. That's a, that's a good portion because we can, you know, someone who's watched a thousand action movies, you can kind of inference, right? You watch Hallmark, you can inference how that Hallmark movie is going to go. You know, and every once in a while, <laughs> they change it up, but not very much. They change it up for a second, and then you're right. It always ends the same way. Yeah, but you that comes with time, right? And a lot mm -hmm. of kids don't have that. They don't have that um, experience all the time. But the writing about kind of what kids are reading is interesting, um, I think, you know, speaking about it is also good because not every kid, sometimes it's that disconnect. They can talk about it, but then writing it is the difficult piece. Um, and then that's when, because of that, uh, that's when everyone relies too heavy on those formulas. First you do this, then you do that and you do that. You do your ACE strategy, right? And now strategies are nice and we, we talk about them here, but I think, you know, you and I always it's like a little caveat to that. A strategy is good, but we want to go somewhere with it. And it's it's not always, you don't always want the scaffold there. Not every response has to be exactly the same. Now, sometimes on standardized testing, you got to lean a little bit farther that way just for the sake of the rubric and everything else. But um, I think just teaching kids and getting them into that process of writing about their reading in an effective way and then slowly honing that over time uh, I think that's great data collecting. Now it's a lot. It, this, this is not an easy process. Mm -mm. No, but I, you, you gave me a thought. I don't know if this is, let, let's just, uh, let me, let me ask your opinion here. Uh, as you were sitting there talking about how sometimes they just can't write it first. You need to, they need to explain it. What if you, a strategy in class, what if you had them read a piece, let's say a poem or whatever, and then what they have to do, like, let's say you and I read this poem, all right, or I read a poem, it doesn't matter. So then what I do is I tell you about my poem. So whatever I'm reading, I tell you about it. And then you have to write down what it is I said. And then I see if I was able to express it the way I wanted to based on what you what you think you heard. And then from there, I take that information and then I write about, I write my response. That'd be interesting. What do you think? Is that even worthy of trying? Yeah, I think it would also be kind of cool just to let kids do that. And then seeing how other people respond to their piece. Yeah. And just and go, oh, I didn't mean that at all. Or, oh, you took that in a different way. Or right. just, just having that author experience of, you know, you can put something out there, but... It's not always what it matters, but then you yeah. get to have the interesting question of, you know, John Green, uh, for people who are familiar, he wrote The Faults in Our Stars, um, all that stuff. He has a YouTube channel called The Vlog Brothers that he does with his brother Hank, and uh, 
in one of those videos, I've always loved this. He talked about the importance of the audience. He was like, you know, when I'm writing for myself, I'm, I know everything that's happening there. It's, it's my, it's, it's my world. But the moment I give it away, the moment it's out there into the world, whether it's published, whether I share it online, whatever the listener or the reader gets from it is just as important as what the author wanted from it. It's almost more important because that's ultimately the be all end all. And so that that's a great segue into kind of literary analysis. And, you know, it's an interesting debate because, you know, there's literature purists out there that are like, no, the white whale means something specific at Moby Dick. The green light means something specific in The Great Gatsby. Um, and while some of that may be true, it's still an interesting fact of, OK, well, if I get something else from it, is that wrong? Is there a right way to analyze? Is there a right way to connect? Um, and I think that going into just that conversation, jumping from you can have an interpretation. This is your interpretation. Can you justify your interpretation? Yes. OK. So if you can justify it and then someone else has a different one and they justify it, who's right? Well, it would be mine. <laughs> That's exactly what the kid would say. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know what you're justifying, but mine is correct. <laughs> but I, I think that is that's for for the math minded kids. That's a lot of the frustration they have. I've had conversations yeah. with kids where they're like, well, this is dumb. If there's no right answer, why are we doing this? And it's it's not the fact that there's not a right answer. It's what are you able to justify in a, in a credible way? And sometimes there's only a few justifications or sometimes there's only one, but sometimes there's quite a few depending on stuff. We've all seen movies that end a certain way and you're like, what the heck was that? And so you start, right. go, you start Googling stuff and you're just like, what? It? And someone else says something. I was like, holy crap. Like I'll give an example. I watch one of my favorite movies. I like horror movies. Uh, mm -hmm. good horror movies, not like the cheap thrills that the teenagers go watch. I like stuff like Midsummer, which is uh, very graphic. Don't watch it if you're squeamish, but it I'm is squeamish. the the director is one of my favorite directors of all time uh, because he's so smart at what he does. But the movie, if you just watch it at face value, it's really this horror story about a girl who gets kind of brought into a, a really messed up cult uh, and it just twists her whole life upside down. And then I was listening to interviews with him and he goes, you know what I, what people don't get from it is that I wrote this when I was going through, this is him. He goes, I wrote this, uh, when I was going through a breakup and it's really about me coming out the other end of the breakup. And, and, you know, there's a scene with a lot of fire and he's like, you know, it's really me burning it away. So it's, it's a positive story that he wrote in a horror movie thematically. Huh. And I just thought it was so interesting that he was able to kind of turn this kind of dark piece into a horror movie, but truthfully, it's a, it's a positive movie that you don't really understand until you, like you, I, well, I didn't understand it. So he said that, and I just find, that nuance really interesting, but I think if we can get kids to 
play with that more and realize that the what they're bringing and this I mean this goes back all the way to Rosenblatt's research right that they're what they're bringing to the page is just as important if not more important and I honestly I feel like that's an empowering thought that a lot of kids don't realize because so much of what we do is uh the it's it's schools being done to kids, right? The assignment is being given to kids. They have to do the assignment. But truthfully, what we should be doing is inviting them into this process because they're just as important as the piece itself. Hmm. Yeah, no. That, yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I just uh, not sure how to monitor <laughs> that. <laughs> Well, I think honestly, just like for me, it's it's that conversation like is, you yeah. know, getting them to engage with it in a, in a meaningful way. And then I think you and then it becomes once they're in there, then you can start honing that over time to be a more accurate writing response to something that that would be good for a test. But I think that initial piece that you're looking for is figuring out, OK, so. I, I know this is important. I need the, their comprehension at this level, but I need them to write with it. So it's like, okay, first step, I need to get them to realize that they are a part of this process. And it's not something that is, it's just that they react to, they are the process. I don't know. That, that's an interesting thought that I've never really put it that way myself, but just thinking about it right now, I'm like, you know, I wonder if kids would feel empowered by going through that and thinking that way. So maybe to help them do that is they start there they they perform an active role in analyzing their own data in other words they look at their first you said at the beginning that maybe they should you give them something to read and then they write about it and then you see what they do with it right you give them a question and mm -hmm. then you see what they do with it so then that's their first piece of evidence that they store for themselves and then periodically you might do another one as you're teaching them all along, right? Like what we're talking about, having them talk about it, discuss it, whatever. And then at some other point you give them another piece and a question and they have to write about it. Right. And then they monitor it and they compare it and maybe even write a little analysis, if you will, a little sentence or two about what have they learned from one piece to the next? How have they grown? How have they not grown? What are they doing different than they were before? And then have them be a part of that and do it maybe another time before the test, at least. What's your thought on yeah. that? I mean, I think anytime you uh, hand the, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, back to the kids, you know, we talk about mm -hmm. kids owning their learning all the time, but if they, if, the more you do that, the I think the more that they're just going to understand the process. It just demystifies it a little bit. I think mm -hmm. a reason why a lot of kids get so confused in schools is because so much of it's happening in the teacher's head. Like <laughs> the teacher's just doing most of it. They're doing the evaluation. They're doing the assignment creation. They're doing the the creation of the rubric, but give it to the kids. What happens if we do that? They become a part of it. Now you guide them and you support them, but I think the more that they are a part of it, uh, it, it just increases that engagement piece, um, you know, to go back to our training the other day. But mm -hmm. truthfully, I think, I don't know. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. So, and then maybe from there, maybe after that first one or that second one, they, 
now you can introduce the rubric. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I, the thing is, is sometimes what we do is we introduce that rubric so fast that it becomes almost like a formula. Yep. So then let them see some things, maybe even model for them some stuff. But you don't. And then when you get closer to the test, maybe analyze it then. Well, and I know I've quoted. Go ahead. Now, then your new piece of data would be there that that new rubric. Yeah. Well, I, I've quoted uh, the one of my favorite educators, our my liter ex literacy coach. She, uh, you know, she said you don't teach non writers how to write an essay for the state test. You teach writers how to ch use what they know to write mm -hmm. a test essay. And I think everyone knows that, right? Good readers are able to dissect tests and they learn how to read the tests. And that's what makes good test takers for by, by and large. Um, right. But you, that's hard to do if you're not a reader. You can't understand what the test is trying to do if you're just trying to comprehend the test. <laughs> and true. so from your point, you know, yeah getting them to write and to analyze and to respond over and over again to where they start being comfortable in that and then going, okay, so let's look at this. What do you notice? I think that skill transition will be a lot more solid in the end. Well, and then another thing that I'm doing too, as far as the writing, and I think I've talked to you this more than once and that is my kids do quite a bit of writing and they write all different kinds of things and they write choice. And like right now that my kids just turned in a play, some of them are kind of cute, but I gave them a play to look at and they had to model their format when they typed it up. So they had to learn how to type it up. I was, I'm over here teaching them how to, they didn't even know how, you know, that that I meant italicized. They had no idea that's what that was. And they didn't know where the brackets were for, and they didn't know how to cap capitalize everything at one time and being able to center things and stuff. So that's also a type of literacy. But uh, but anyway, that was one of the things that they just got finished doing is typing up their plays. Some of them are really kind of cute. Um, you know, some of them are uh, dramas with romance in it. You know, the girls are sticking to the romance and the boys are figuring out they're mainly football, uh, soccer, or, uh, or some kind of military issue. <laughs> going on but you know it's pretty it's kind of cool some of them have even done some superheroes but the idea is i'm trying to give them a lot of experiences and different types of writing and i'm thinking that that will also be something that we monitor I'm, i've been monitoring what what have i not what kinds of writing have they not done yet because uh, i want them to be so comfortable with writing that when they get asked to do something like respond to this piece that they've just read. Um, I'm thinking like, for example, uh, for drama, you know, one of our things um, standards is how does the playwright uh, develop the character through dialogue and, and uh, stage directions, right? Well, when we first started, when I, when I had them tie, the funny thing is, is they were reading it okay and everything. But um, at first, 
uh, I didn't realize that they didn't understand what the difference between stage directions and dialogue was. But then when I had to have them as playwrights themselves, figure out what the dialogue is and how to insert their stage directions and how to set up the stage. That was for the first time they were like, I don't know what all that is. So it forced them to have to figure it out. And then we used a play to help them, uh, you know, model it after that. We read that play and everything and went through it. And so I'm hoping that, you know, why did you, you know, why did you, uh, use that dialogue because one of the things was they had to make sure that their dialogue developed their character. They had to give me something in there. Like if they wanted the audience to know that that character had blue eyes, then they'd have somebody say it somewhere like, Oh, what blue eyes you have, you know, <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> you know, what big eyes you have, uh, you know, and, and uh, with, uh, with the grandma, who's the wolf, you know, that kind of thing. And, Little Red Riding Hood, that's how. But you have to have somebody say it. And so they were like, oh, okay. So maybe now when I ask them about purpose, they can better understand um, why does the author or how did the author go about doing that? Maybe they can find it. So uh, and drama is something that I don't think our kids really struggle with that much. But uh, but still, it's, the process is the same in any of the, any of the things. So... I don't know. I think they need to be able to write first before you start teaching them how to write for the test. I think you, you, I agree with your, your coach. Well, and uh, he, I mean, this is, I don't know. I, I, the, you know, another quote I always say is from my other mentor, but she was talking about English teachers always feel like they have to start over every year. It's like, oh, we got to start about with verbs. We got to start That's with this. True. We got to start with this. And I, I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. Everyone does it. We've all had the same conversations before, but I weaned myself off of it. I was like, no, they get it. We just got to touch on it and then move forward. But, mm-hmm. you know, I just it is really difficult for me to understand why every single thing has to be direct taught before it happens. Like let like throw it out there and see what happens. Like give a story, have your stuff prepared, but let kids read it and then see where they go. You know, throwing out a poem and guiding them through that, almost like the close reading process. What's your initial reaction to this poem? Sweet. Write it down. Awesome. Let's watch it again. This time I really want you to focus on something specific. Boom. Watch it again. What are they writing about specific? I don't know. Let's have them talk. Let's see what they're noticing. Boom. I got a bunch of data. It's telling me what they're looking at. Step three, I'm going to add a specific question. Okay. What is, I'm, let's say it's a narrative poem, whatever. I'm like, all right, I want you to describe what the, what the main problem in this poem is based on this. So the third read, go through it. Boom. Now I have a lot of this. I've kind of walked them through this level of thinking. You do that. 20, 30, 40 times in a school year, what have you done? You've taught your kids how to go through a piece and how to think about something over time. And I think that process that it's, it's really teaching a brain how to think about something. You read it once. Okay. That's interesting. You dive into it again. You know, Billy Collins has so many poems like that where you read it once and you're kind of like, okay, this seems very, just like a, you know, a general kind of narrative poem. And then you go a little bit deeper and you're like, oh, this is, you know, he's going a little bit deeper here. And then and then mm-hmm. once you teach your kids that, though, that's really when it's 
it, they're not just reacting because I think that uh, I would be shocked if teachers disagreed with this. But I feel like one of the main problems with kids, um, especially kids that struggle, is they'll read it and then they'll just give their their first initial response. And that's as far as they go. And that's when yeah. tests that's when tests really screw them up, because in a class we can go no pause and we walk them through that. But if we don't teach that over and over and over and over and over again. On the test, they're going to go boop, and they're going to answer that first answer that is trying to trick them into that rather than going to that next level. And that's going to be worse on these written responses because oh, yeah. because they're not going to have even the choice to second guess themselves. It's just them in the page. Um, right. And so you have to be able to teach them, hey, this might be your initial reaction, and it's not necessarily wrong. But go. What do? You, what is your evidence here? Go back, reread, make the connections, and then see. You know what? What depth is this theme really at? Is it really about friendship, or is it about valuing something else? And I think that that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. That workshop can really hone in on um, if you're focusing on the idea of workshopping through ideas, workshopping through pieces, workshopping through just the process process teaching, I think teaches that better than direct teaching could ever try to teach. Yeah, I, I, um, uh, I think so. I, I think, uh, I like that. I like the fact that you talk about workshopping it and, you know, even I do workshop all the time and I still need to be reminded that we need to workshop it. Um, I think we get caught up sometimes and, and I know we, we started talking about data and all of that at the beginning or, trying to tie all this back but but still um we're told we have to to do all of this stuff and and uh especially keep certain kind of data like we just finished our third data chart and they're putting it up and uh, you know i don't i mean i guess it does help us to go through as a team you know we're going through our data we're finding out what we're weak in what we're strong in and that's important to note but but putting it back on the kids and then having them workshop and have them be responsible. Like we as teachers are looking at the data and I think sometimes we take it over because it's just faster that way. And, uh, but I don't know if it's really getting us everywhere. Like I told you, my inference should be going up and up and up. It's not, it's, it's all is sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, but I should have a trend going up and I don't, I have a flat line in some of my classes and, um, uh, that concerns me. So how do I change that? And and I'm not, so that's kind of where I'm at. But I do think sometimes we are stressed and then we forget that we need to just slow down and teach these kids how to actually read and comprehend based on the data that we see. Like my kids are having trouble inferencing. I think your technique that you're talking about might, might be helpful with that. Um, you know, getting them, what are you seeing and reading it over and over again, rather than read it, go to the next thing, read it, go to the next thing. And I think that's what we're guilty of doing because our curriculum is saying you have to get, you know, these many things read and, you know, and whatever you do, we can't use one full novel to teach, you know, because you can't teach everything in one full novel. Well, I got, you know, I'm, I'm not, I think I can, I think I, like you said, I mean, I can guide them through it and, uh, and then they need to independently read so they can get practice on their own. And, um, but I think we have a tendency, the reason we don't let kids take over and we don't hand them the keys is because we don't have time to hand them the keys It's true in our minds. And so, but I like your, I like that to be reminded to have the kids workshop it. I like that. 
Yeah. And, you know, I guess one last capstone for me on this is, you know, especially if you're looking at data, this is the conversation I had over and over again as a department chair when I was working with, you know, people who didn't understand English data the way that was helpful necessarily was, you know, if you're tracking, you know, inferencing, for instance, whatever standard that is. 0.5 F, right? Is that it? Yes, I don't remember. it is. 5F. So, For us, it's 5F. Yeah. <clears throat> so if they're, if that's what you're looking at as a team and you're, and you're looking for that growth, it's also important to look at it, make sure you, you're splitting it up by genre because inferencing in poetry is different than inferencing in nonfiction, the inferencing mm-hmm. than fiction. Certain kids might be very good at it in fiction. Certain kids might be very bad at it in poetry or nonfiction. And so we would have these conversations with the powers that be. And they'd be like, why is your inferencing down on this test? What happened? I'm like, well, it's a different genre. <laughs> so it's a, right. it's, a, it's, it's, it's practically a different skill. Yes, it is. And that's, I think that's where I'm having trouble. We had, uh, um, again, powers that be, uh, if you will, um, they were like, well, you need to be looking at it this way, but yet the people that are telling us to look at it a certain way are not necessarily literary literature type people. They're more math or science oriented and, and it just doesn't look the same. It Cause we have our, you know, it, it doesn't look the same. The genre does make a difference. It really, really does. And, and they were, I think that's part of it. And I think that's what happened to me this week is they're like, cause we really, let's look at, uh, we've all decided they made us choose one and we chose five F for the same reason you're talking about. And that was comprehension is your overarching. If, if, if you can't comprehend you're dead in the water, you just can't, you're not going anywhere. So you've got to be able to comprehend. And one way to, to check that, they're comprehending is inferencing. Can they actually make predictions infer? I mean, inference inferencing is a huge thing. I mean, it's talking about making generalizations. Are you able to ask questions and answer those questions? Are you able to make predictions? Uh, are you able to find context clues and and um, read between the lines, if you will, and understand the deeper meanings of what the author is talking about. I mean, inferencing is a broad stroke for a lot of smaller um, uh, skills, I think, for reading. And so it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what these kids are able to do. And uh, when you're trying to talk to somebody that doesn't understand that, they're all like, well, no, you need to test that over and over. How many? Well, when you look at one inferencing question, when you look at one inference, when you when you take and look at your inferencing questions, and that's another thing that I think I've got to do is I got to look at each one of these questions that are identified as inferencing and actually see what skill they're actually testing, because that's another issue is as I just said, it's a big umbrella just for a lot of little bitty other skin. They're not little bitty, but you know, other skills. And so when you're looking at that broad stroke, how are they questioning it? Because it changes over, over time. Well, and I was, I feel like I'm going to write an article called genre as a skill, because it's really, that's, what it is it they're yeah reading nonfiction 
takes a skill set. Reading fiction takes a skill set. Reading poetry takes a skill set. And we treat it all as just reading in curriculum sometimes. And sometimes we, you know, like you said, we have these conversations with people who really don't live in this world necessarily. And they just kind of treat it as if it's all really the same. It's, it's like taking kids to a library and going, well, why aren't they like, you see those kids that randomly pick up books, you know, they're not really looking, they're just grabbing something random. It's because it's a different language. Spines of books, libraries is a language, it's literacy language. And so Mm -hmm. I don't, I think sometimes we miss some of that, that really, it doesn't take long to teach kids the language of that. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a lot to teach kids that, Hey, when you're approaching nonfiction, this is this is kind of how your brain should shift a little bit. But also there's some skill sets from fiction that really lend itself to reading nonfiction. Well, especially if you're reading literary nonfiction that really drives in some some story based things. You know, some of the most ground uh, breaking pieces of of news are because it has a narrative thread that connects to so many people, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, the most groundbreaking discoveries, you know, you just think of all the historical articles that have been written, you know, or the, the pieces that have been put out there usually have an amazing narrative that kind of goes through it. And so teaching kids, not only is it, it's separate, it is a separate skill set, but there's a lot of crossover and you just, it's almost like teaching them how to go, what, what tools do you need for here? And how do you know when you're, when you're handed a piece, if a teacher said nothing, and if I handed you an article, if I handed you a passage, whatever reading, how do you know as the student, what tools to bring out? Mm. And that would be an interesting question to ask kids. That would be. Cause they might even, I mean, especially if you did it just cold, ask that question, they'd be like, what do you mean tools? Like, <laughs> I don't even, but getting them to think that way, I think would be, I think that's a really interesting strategy that I'd be interested to see if it works is, okay, so we're looking at this. We know it's nonfiction. Why do we know it's nonfiction? Okay, we got those answers. What tools do we need based on our inferences? Just looking at this, what tools do we need as readers that we, that we might have? We need to set out all of our things so we're nice and prepared. What do we need to do that? And I think that's, I think that would be an interesting thought experiment, especially for kids in like maybe, you know, I know y'all do tutorial groups and whatnot, especially as testing gets closer, is having that conversation and maybe even training kids to think about that. Hey, all right, I know this is fiction. What tools do I need before I jump in and seeing what happens? That's interesting. I like that. I might even try it. I'll let you know. <laughs> You're like, Chastain, this was a failure. They don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'll do an action research and I'll look at this. I'll figure it out. All right. That's fascinating. I like it. Well, we're at about an hour, Miss Ochoa. I know. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Well, and we started, we started this whole idea on what data matters. And I don't know if we really answered that question, <laughs> did we? I don't know. Uh, but we did... You did kind of help me work out some issues. I hope as far as like, how am I going to, you know, I got to get these kids ready. What am I going to do to get them there? And what am I going to look at to do so? And I don't know if we can call that pure data as in numbers, but at least gives me some things to look at. Well, we shall see. We shall see. But ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Craft the Draft. Will Ochoa have this figured out next week? I don't know. Come back. You can (laughs) find out. We will uh, 
to be continued on this. We'll see what happens with this data talk. If you have an idea, especially if you're a Patreon supporter, send it our way. You could also, a lot of y'all DM me specifically. Y'all could also use the contact page on the Craft and Draft what website? I couldn't remember because sometimes I say the Craft and Draft Workshop website because that's the name, craftandjuffworkshop.com. But anyway, sorry, got a little brain fart there. But ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this, subscribe so you don't miss anything. Leave a review if you have not already. And as always, know that we are here for you.